All right. Well, uh, it's a, a great pleasure to welcome you all to this um, seminar, one of the Middle East Center uh, series in social movements and popular mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. My name's John Chalcraft. I'm an associate professor in the government department. I work on the Middle East and social movements, labor, and migration. And um, in this kind of seminar, because we've pre-circulated the paper, the idea is, and, and of course you've all read it in great detail and uh, chafing to start the discussion, we, uh, we only give to our guest uh, t 10 to 15 minutes to, to present, and then we have a 10-minute response from the discussant, and then we have plenty of time for the discussion, which can go on until 7.15. So if you kindly silence your phones, the event is going to be recorded uh, for the podcast, which then goes out on the, on the internet. And, uh, but uh, the main thing is we're delighted to welcome uh, Professor Hugh Roberts, uh, who's uh, come from Tufts University. Uh, he's probably well known to a lot of us. He's the Edward Keller Professor of North African and Middle East History at Tufts University. And of course, he has a very long and distinguished track record in, in writing on Algeria. And there's one, the, the book, uh, one of his books, one of his important books, which collects uh, a lot of his important interventions, is The Battlefield, Algeria, 1988 to, to 2002, Studies in a Broken Polity. That was published with Verso in 2003. And, uh, and his recent uh, tour de force was a book called Berber Government, the Kabylie Polity in Pre-Colonial Algeria, which was published with IB Tourists in 2014. Uh, and, um, and there's, but there's also a recent publication in French published in Algiers called Algérie Kabylie. What's the rest of the title? Or is that the whole title? Um, Études et interventions. Okay. Études et interventions. And, uh, and that's uh, another one. And isn't there going to be a sequel to uh, Berber Government? I'm keeping it under wraps, oh, okay. but uh, yes, right. there is. There okay, is. okay, great. Well, we're very much looking forward to that. And so uh, that's our main speaker here uh, this evening. Uh, we're also very happy to have as our discussant for the paper, Dr. Ola Hariri, who is a research officer here in the Middle East Center, and she has a PhD in the history of Iraq, you may think, well, why didn't I pick someone from Algeria Studies? And I thought, well, no, because I want to make sure. And I, 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 well, I thought, you know, let's get Professor Roberts out of his immediate comfort zone. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, her PhD uh, was completed and submitted in 2016, and it's called A Case of Transgressive Contention, the Iraqi Independence Movement. And, and she also has a, oh, no, sorry, that's the name of a chapter that she's published in a Foer's Jurgis edited volume um, of 2016, and it's a, a, a volume on contentious politics uh, in the Middle East. But the, the, her PhD, published in 2016, is called Iraqi State-Society Relations, 1914 to 1958. And uh, although her country's specialism is different to Hugh Roberts's, I think she's very well qualified to, to act as discussant. So... Uh, Let's uh, welcome uh, both of these uh, speakers in a moment. And uh, let me see. If you want to tweet about the event, uh, the hashtag is, um, is uh, 
hashtag LSE Roberts. And um, my role otherwise is just to keep everybody to time and to turn things over to uh, our speaker. Let's welcome him. Do I use the microphone or can yeah, you all hear me perfectly clearly? The, it's better for the recording. It's better for the recording, yeah, yeah. so I have to press something. No, I think it's on. Oh, it's on every, already. Okay. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure uh, to be back here. I, I was for a while a, a research fellow here, and uh, I feel nostalgic for those days, so it's a great pleasure to be back at LSE. And I'm most grateful to John Chalcraft for inviting me to contribute to this seminar series. Uh, I can't help thinking that um, one of the lessons I already draw is that I should read his emails a little bit more carefully, um, since I'm not entirely sure that I've delivered what uh, uh, was required, but uh, um, also uh, I haven't come with a, um, a PowerPoint, uh, just a, a series of uh, um, a kind of uh, summary of the, of the main argument of the paper, which uh, I'll try to um, deliver within my 10-minute limit. And since I have 10 points, it'll be one point per minute, speaking very, very rapidly. Um, the, allowed I'm allowed 15, okay, I can yeah. slow down a little. Uh, I hope I'm not already speaking too rapidly. Um, the uh, title I originally gave was The FFS and the Failure of Opposition. I think that was the title used to advertise it. I then forgot that and gave it a different title, the FFS, How the FFS Became What It Is. Uh, but actually the paper has turned out to be How the FFS Became What It Was, um, for reasons I'll explain in a moment. The paper offers a review of the character, behavior, and trajectory of the FFS, that's the Socialist Forces Front, Front des Forces Socialistes, in the light of the claim uh, that it is Algeria's oldest opposition party uh, and the ancillary claim that its leader, Hossein Ait Ahmed, was a tireless fighter for democracy. These are claims that are widely uh, circulated and subscribed to in Algeria, most notably on the occasion of his death, which was um, marked very, very, uh, in a very spectacular way, both by the Algerian government decreeing eight days of national mourning, and in particular by the many, many thousands of people in Kabylia who made a point of being present uh, at his burial uh, in his uh, native village. Um, my argument covers the period of 50 years, from 1963 to 2013, when Ait Ahmed was directing the FFS. It does not address what the FFS has or may be said to have become since Ait Ahmed retired from the presidency of the party in 2013. The claim I mention, oldest opposition party, tireless fighter for democracy, the first claim I question on two counts. Uh, the, I question the claim that the FFS was ever really engaged in opposition and the claim that it was ever really a political party. Um, I suggest that dissidence is a more accurate term uh, than opposition, and that the FFS, since 1989, functioned in accordance with the logic of a tariqa, that's to say of a Sufi order, rather than the logic of a political party properly so-called. I realize there is a provocative aspect to these uh, suggestions. I suggest that the evolution of the FFS from 1963 to 1989 can be understood as an instance of what McAdam, Tarot, and Tilly in their book Dynamics of uh, Contention call the transition or the change from 
transgressive contention to contained contention, uh, and that this change corresponded to the change in the profile of the Algerian regime from the single-party formula to the pluralist formula uh, from 1989 onwards with the introduction of a new constitution in that year. My central observation is that the FFS of 1989 onwards, 1989 to 2013, did not function as a party of democratic reform. It did something else. Um, I note a number of key features of the FFS over that period, 89 to 2013. First of all, at the very beginning, the FFS sloughs off, that's to say, abandons uh, the old base of the party in the uh, Maki in the, um, in the uh, tradition of the uh, Ancien Mujahideen, the former guerrilla fighters of, of the Liberation War. They are all abandoned. Secondly, uh, Ait Ahmed emerges as the uncontested leader, uh, approximating to the status of Zaim, uh, and uh, in a way that um, qualifies the party's uh, claims to be a democratic party. He's not elected, he's not accountable, he's uncontested. Uh, and moreover, uh, from 1992 onwards, he is actually directing his party from Lausanne in Switzerland, um, a point that didn't escape attention of his critics in Algeria. Moreover, uh, he personally appoints uh, the FFS activist given overall responsibility for the party inside Algeria. This is known as the First Secretary, Premier Secretaire, um, and uh, the, uh, this is... Uh, a, an appointment made by Ait Ahmed personally. It's not an elective position. Moreover, the first secretaries rotate regularly. Um, they rarely, in fact, I know of only one case where a first secretary served two terms in succession. Uh, some of them served more than one term, but not in succession. The normal term is around two years. Uh, and this is, of course, a feature uh, that um, uh, was consistent with and helped guarantee Ait Ahmed's unchallenged uh, dominance of the party. Um, a third point is that its actual positions um, uh, are interesting. On the uh, important question of participation in elections, the FFI detail this in the paper, I won't go into detail now, uh, its position is erratic. It doesn't have a consistent and clear position on whether or not the procedures organized by the Algerian authorities that they call elections were valid uh, electoral procedures. Uh, it sometimes participates, it sometimes boycotts. Uh, I suggest this is not a clear position. Uh, above all, there's no real attempt to propose, let alone campaign for or agitate for uh, democratic reforms. Uh, the, the substance of its uh, most clear-cut political positions are negations rather than affirmations. They're denials, not claims. In 1991, in the historic election that was, of course, aborted halfway through that saw the Islamic Salvation Front win a landslide uh, lead on the first ballot in December 91. The FFS actually did very well in Kabylia, winning 25 seats on the first ballot, but if you look at its propaganda, its propaganda was neither this nor that, neither the fundamentalist republic nor the police state. Uh, in other words, it was defining itself in terms of uh, opposing or, or challenging, but never in terms of proposing a particular vision or perspective or policy or program. Um, and this, in fact, I argue, is, was, has been characteristic of the FFS all the time. Moreover, um, it has involved or has been accompanied by the refusal of the FFS at key moments in, 
in the crisis during the 90s, and I instanced several of these, uh, its refusal to support initiatives with which it actually agrees uh, when the initiative has been actually proposed or taken by another political actor, uh, whether another uh, notionally dissident or opposition party or, um, in fact, the regime itself. Uh, it, this is what is often referred to in Algeria as la politique de la chaise vide, the policy of the empty chair. And I suggest that this is um, uh, a function of uh, Ait Ahmed's conception of his strategy of alliances. And I go into some detail on that. Um, the interim conclusion I draw from uh, this brief um, uh, survey of the FFS 89 to 2013 is that uh, its key concern throughout was to deny legitimacy to the regime, uh, to sustain the position of denial of uh, the regime's legitimacy, uh, that this was what underlay uh, its other positions, uh, including its refusal to back initiatives with which it actually agreed because they were initiatives taken by the regime, whether Prime Minister Sid Ahmed Rosali in 1991 or President Zerwal in 1994. Um, and that um, this uh, preoccupation with um, legit, the, the denial of, the, of legitimacy to the regime uh, was a, a constant and underlying fundamental uh, um, element of its outlook uh, and that uh, despite the very considerable differences between the FFS of that period, 89 to 2013, and the earlier FFS of 63-65, um, uh, this uh, preoccupation with the legitimacy was actually uh, in the DNA of the FFS from the very beginning. And at that point, I then uh, offer a discussion of the or origins of the FFS in the revolt uh, of 63-65, um, the period, in other words, where the FFS was engaging in what one could call transgressive contention because it was um, a rebellion. Um, and I draw a contrast with uh, the case of uh, um, rebellions in uh, Turkey during the Kemalist period in the 20s and 30s um, uh, and the observation of a specialist on Turkey that they fell into three different categories, peaceful public protest, uh, armed rebellion, uh, or uh, the activity of uh, what this, um, I've got another five minutes, okay, um, refers to as tarakats, in other words, uh, Sufi orders, um, making clear distinctions between the three, and I point out that actually the FFS straddles all three categories, or has, um, in a sense, migrated from one category to another. Um, I think that's an important uh, feature of its uh, nature. Um, during the uh, two and a half years, uh, no, not uh, less than two and a half years uh, of the rebellion, uh, it evolves from a relatively collective leadership with Ait Ahmed being primus inter pares, but with a large number of major figures involved at the outset of the FFS in 63. They all fall by the wayside. It, it ends up as what the Algerians call un one-man show. Um, and this is the premise of the subsequent, or one of the premises of the subsequent evolution of the leadership of the FFS into uh, what Algerians refer to as Zaimism. And there is, of course, an irony in that, that it should have ended up as a rather Zaimist um, political organization, given that the behavior of Ahmed Benbella as a Zaim was part of the FFS's critique uh, of the Benbella regime uh, in 1963. Uh, I look at the rhetoric, and I point out that uh, in the original proclamation of the FFS in 1963, um, the key elements of it was that the regime of Benbella is denounced as neo-fascist and the FFS, which is just announcing its existence, claiming to be a political party with a central committee and so on, uh, 
declares that the Ben Bella regime is illegal. Um, and, um, uh, but uh, the two other features of the FFS at its inception are very striking. First of all, its proclamation contains no demands whatsoever. And there is a, a striking contrast with the rebellion in the Moroccan Rif uh, in 58-59, uh, when the Rifian rebels uh, had 18 demands, uh, 18 uh, grievances that they looked to the, the state to redress. Um, there were no such demands in the FFS pro proclamation, no such statement of grievances, simply a condemnation of the Ben Bella regime as neo-fascist. Um, moreover, and this is an equally important point, the principle of the single-party regime, which had already been established in, uh, by Ben Bella and co., uh, although transgressed in practice by the FFS declaring itself to be a party and existing publicly, uh, was not made an issue of in this proclamation at all, um, and that is not an oversight. Uh, I argued that, in fact, um, the FFS was not actually at that point seriously in the business uh, of demanding or proposing a pluralist constitution. Uh, it was engaging in a kind of um, uh, revolt against the regime, but not elevating the question of the single party into the um, casus belli of the revolt. Um, I argue that the calculus underlying this rhetoric was a, a ploy of denouncing the regime as neo-fascist and therefore counter-revolutionary, um, doing so in the name of the revolution, which Ait Ahmed claimed to be, uh, to be uh, to, in a sense, to embody as one of the founder members of the original FLN. And that the, the strategy was to put the regime under pressure uh, to cut Ait Ahmed a deal. Um, the, as such, the, re the rebellion failed uh, and had quite a high human cost, um, but it also had an important effect, which was to transform the political field in Kabylia, to reconfigure the various elements in it, and to establish a new polarization between two main forces, the FFS, as, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, and then the Kabyles participating in the Algerian state and serving it, who were uh, collectively... Uh, damned as les Kabyles de service, the KDS. Um, and this was an important <coughs> consequence of the, uh, of the revolt, uh, transforming the political field. And this transformation endured at least till 1980 when the rise of the Berberist movement in Kabylia with uh, the Berber Spring of uh, March-April 1980 generated or was the occasion for the emergence of a new generation of younger uh, activists uh, in the Berberist movement, complicating the picture from the point of view of Ait Ahmed. Um, have I got a couple of minutes? Um, two, two last points I want to... Just one or two minutes. The two last points I want to make is that the F this matters. The true nature of the FFS has mattered because um, it, uh, it has been a template for other oppositionist or dissident uh, movements in Algeria ever since. Uh, and I cite in particular... Uh, the extent to which it can be seen to have been a template for the Islamic Salvation Front, the Front Islamique du Salut, the FIS, uh, which um, made such a stir in 1990-91 with uh, winning two landslide elections. Um, the uh, FIS was, was correctly seen at the time as a chip off the old block of the FLN, as, the, uh, as it had a ploy of, of uh, claiming to be the, the son of the historic FLN, the play on words, uh, FIS in French meaning son. Um, but in fact, I point out that it was also um, resembled in structural terms uh, the FFS. The sequencing is the same. From informal networks 
then becoming a formal political party operating as a party of protest in a public space, that public space then being closed down by a military intervention uh, and an Islamic maquis uh, uh, taking um, the, the uh, succeeding the earlier party. Uh, the difference is that the recourse to the maquis, to guerrilla activism, was natural and direct for the FFS because it you know, came out of the maquis. Uh, in the case of the FIS, it was indirect uh, um, via a, an intermediate movement known as the MIA um, that operated as an Islamic maquis in Algeria in the 1980s for five years, 1982 to 1987, but it's still a link to the FFS because the founder of that MIA maquis uh, was a veteran of the FFS, Mustafa Bouyali, who had been a veteran of the Liberation Army during the war um, and then was an activist in the FFS. So there's a connection there. <coughs> Uh, and also a connection at the level of themes, because a key theme of Bouyali's Maki was the condemnation of the regime as corrupt, um, and corrupt, the corruptness of the Benbella regime was a theme in the FFS proclamation. Uh, Bouyali simply gives it an explicitly Islamic coloring, which brings me to my last point. Um, the uh, man who read the proclamation of the FFS on the 29th of September 1963, Morad Usdiq, uh, was from a very distinguished family uh, of Ain al-Hamam in the Jurjura Mountains, uh, and a family, in fact, of what in Kabila are known as Imravvan. Uh, in Arabic, you'd say Marabtin. That's to say, a saintly lineage, a very distinguished one. But Ait Ahmed is also a member of uh, a saintly lineage. The Ait Ahmed, Ait Ahmed, Ait Ahmed sorry, <coughs> are the Imravvan of Taqa, and Taqa uh, is the largest uh, village of the Arsh Ait Yahya. Um, and moreover, they are a branch of the single most important Maraboutic or saintly lineage in the entire Jojura region, the Al-Sidi Hamid, uh, who provided the leaders of Kabil resistance to the French conquest in 1857. There's a whole backstory here. Um, and uh, I mentioned that the Maraboutic uh, aspect of the uh, FFS is something that has not been subject to um, serious analysis. It's been a theme of the RCD. I may have missed something, but if it has been subject, I haven't noticed it. Um, sorry? Oh, well, uh, I wasn't counting that. No one's read it except you, John. Um, but um, uh, it's, it's been a, a kind of secondary theme of, of the discourse of its cabial rival, the RCD, the sort of mutterings on websites. Um, but I, I argue there are at least two reasons for taking this very seriously. The first uh, is the very curious and interesting fact that Ait Ahmed, when he himself was, was a candidate for the National Assembly, both in 1962 and again in 1991, didn't stand in, in the part of Kabilia that he came from, the Wilaya of Tiziuzu, but in a totally different Wilaya, the Wilaya of Setif, and this is a curiosity uh, that has finally been explained because in 1991, his constituency uh, was the, the constituency of a place called, in, in French, Beni Urtilan, in Arabic, Beni Warthilan, in Kabil, Ath-Warthiran, this is an Arsh, that's to say what many people would call a tribe. I don't like the term tribe in this context. Uh, and what uh, I finally was able to find out is the origins of Ait Ahmed's connection to this uh, Arsh, which is a long way from where he's actually from. And that connection is with a particular village called the village uh, Anu, which happens to be a village entirely of Imravdan. It's an entirely maraboutic or saintly settlement. Uh, in other words, the, the, his connections as a member of a distinguished Maraboutic lineage has been the premise of his connections with uh, this particular locality in the Gulaya of Satif. 
Um, and moreover, in the elections of 1991, when the FFS did very well, uh, winning 25 seats, uh, the village of Anu uh, was the campaign headquarters uh, for Ait Ahmed in that constituency. In other words, he was quietly, discreetly basing himself on the very important networks of Marabutic um, uh, complicities. The other reason I suggest is that when we go back to the original proclamation and uh, figure out the logic behind making no demands at all, but denouncing the regime as neo-fascist, this represented, and therefore counter-revolutionary, uh, and with Ait Ahmed as a founder member of the revolutionary FLN, in a sense authorizing himself to uh, resume the revolution against this counter-revolutionary regime. I suggest that this is a rhetorical ploy, uh, an exaggeration, but its function is to make licit what would otherwise be illicit. Uh, and as such, it represents a kind of secularization of the, of the Islamist ploy of takfir. When the FIS denounces the Algerian state uh, in 1990 91 as l'état impie, it is engaging in takfir to justify it wasn't actually in seriously intending as a political party to engage in violence. It was pursuing a peaceful path, but it was mobilizing what was left of the revolutionary populist tradition uh, to seek uh, a mass base and doing so very effectively in electoral terms. I suggest that in fact what we see in the FFS's discourse is in fact the same tactic, but um, not explicitly Islamic, uh, because of course in the early 60s that wasn't fashionable. Um, but we should remember that the Algerian revolution was actually lived by most Algerians as a jihad, that the guerrilla fighters of the Liberation Army were known as Mujahideen, that the FLN's principal publication during the war was El Mujahid. Uh, and if you want to uh, visit a museum devoted to the Algerian War of Liberation in Algiers, you have to go to the Musée du Jihad. Uh, and that that was uh, a key element uh, of uh, the FFS's DNA. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, um, thank you, John, for inviting me um, to act in this discussion, and thank you, um, Hugh, for a very enriching uh, paper. So um, I do feel a little bit like an imposter here. Um, my research interests do lie in the historical sociology of the Middle East, but specifically on Iraq, which is what I spent um, four years of my PhD uh, researching. Um, so although my empirical focus is not on Algeria, I do have an interest in the broader analytical themes um, that are addressed in uh, this paper, and so I hope to just touch upon those themes in my comments. Um, what I want to start off by doing, though, is just to outline what I've understood from the paper and the two main points um, that I drew from it, um, and then I'll move on just to um, offer a few comments and questions um, based on those two points. So the first point that stood out to me was the argument that there is a causal relationship um, between the lack of democracy in Algeria since 1963 and the political activity of the oldest political party, that is the Socialist Front, or the FFS. And the point that I think you make in your um, paper is that there, this is partly the result of the Socialist Front's focus on the question of legitimacy, that is the question of who rules, who has the right to rule, rather than the question of how citizens should be governed and how they should be ruled. In other words, the question of the regime structure. Um, and so the, the Socialist Force's unwillingness or inability to confront the one-party system and its fixation on who has the right to rule, i.e. on legitimacy, uh, means that it does not move from dissent to full-fledged political position. 
So that was the first point that I drew from mm -hmm. uh, your paper. The second argument I drew, linking on to the first, is that the Socialist Front's inability to bring about lasting political change can be explained partly by its transition from transgressive to contained contention. In other words, from non-institutional direct confrontation with the state as epitomized in 1963 to 65 through uh, the rebellion um, against the Bembella government um, to more institutionalist engagement with the Algerian government after 1989 when officially a pluralist multi-party system was established. And the point that I inferred from this paper, therefore, was that whilst before 1989 the Socialist Front's transgressive contention increased the likelihood of political change after 1989 by taking a more institutionalist engagement, i.e. contained contention, it was indirectly reinforcing or reproducing the institutional framework of the one-party system that it was claiming at the same time to challenge. So those are two arguments that I drew um, from, from the paper. Now, what I think is particularly important about these arguments is that you make it, uh, arguments that you make is that you take seriously the agency of the uh, socialist front as a political group or as a movement. So you issue a state-centric perspective which attributes all political responsibility to the state, and rather you view movements as equally accountable for their political choices that they make and having an important role in shaping the political landscape in Algeria. And I think this is an important point to bear beyond Algeria um, when we're studying political movements and when we're looking at political movements so that we don't fall into the trap of romanticising these movements. Having said that, um, I was left wondering about the distinction that you make between the um, Socialist Front's prioritising of the question of legitimacy over the question of how Algeria should be governed, i.e. structural reform. So the question I've got is why is it that, as an academic, um, you think um, there's more of a, you, you think that political movements should prioritise um, structural reform beyond questions of legitimacy? Um, what's the kind of theoretical basis for, for that argument, is what I'm getting at. And this brings me on uh, to the second point, um, which is the question of why it is that, in your opinion, uh, the socialist uh, front prioritised the question of who should govern, i.e. legitimacy, over the question of institution building and structural reform. If we take this question and try to explain it in terms of state leaders or state agents, I think it's quite easy to, to, to explain. So if we think about Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt after independence or Abdel Karim Qasim in Iraq after independence, both these leaders didn't prioritise parliamentary democracy or structural reform. And this was partly because they both rose to power against the backdrop of a monarchic and parliamentary system dominated by British elites. So seen from their historic vantage point, the priority wasn't to establish democratic system, but priority was to consolidate power, uh, to fend off British control, etc. Um, but from the perspective of social movement, I'm not sure um, I understand how that works. So if perhaps you could just clarify why it is that from the uh, perspective of uh, the socialist front, um, the priority was legitimacy over uh, structural reform. Second question I have, and this is to do with the question of long-term political change and how this comes about. Um, the argument I drew from your paper is that the socialist forces have contributed indirectly to the lack of democracy or authoritarianism by refusing to address um, the issue of the one-party system and instead focusing on legitimacy. And at the same time, when the socialist forces did engage in pluralist politics after 1989, you're quite critical of this 
contain contention as a route to real or long-term political um, change. So inferring from this, are you suggesting that long-term um, gradual political change through the existing institutional frameworks is not possible, and that the only route to lasting political change is through confrontation, which is often violent, i.e. through transgressive um, contention? Um, so if this is the argument, and the question is um, whether transgressive methods alone can bring about long-term uh, political change, and it would seem that they can't, but rather perhaps that long-term change requires that transgressive methods are used at particular historical or critical historical junctures, um, when alternative possibilities for the future emerge, and when there are possibilities for realizing these divergences from the past. So I'm thinking here of major wars, you know, World War I, World War II, wars of independence. Um, when transgressive contention takes place within these critical historic moments, there's a likelihood for long-term change. But if these critical junctures are not present, then I'm not sure what the consequences of transgressive contention will be. Um, I have what, one final point. So the final thing that struck me whilst reading um, your paper was the focus on internal dynamics as explanations for political trajectory um, in Algeria. And I think um, this was at the expense of international and historical dynamics which didn't receive much attention in the paper. And I make this point not as an empirical one, it's not about a question of emission or adding and stirring, but it's an analytical point about the constitutive impact of international developments and changes on internal political dynamics. And here I'm thinking not only about um, the obvious question of the political legacy of 130 years of French colonialism, but also of the post-colonial external factors that shaped Algerian politics. So the Cold War, and perhaps most importantly, the end of the Cold War, decline of Soviet power, the resurgence of French interference in Algeria after 1989, how all these um, shape the political um, landscape. Um, and more, more broadly, perhaps, given that one-party system um, is a theme that we see across the post-colonial states, not only in Algeria, not only in this region, but across the globe, um, perhaps this global presence suggests that the explanation for this lies more in international forces than it does with internal political choices and dynamics. Um, so I'm not sort of trying to suggest that um, uh, international forces deterministically shape internal developments, but I would suggest the line between the internal and external politics is very much blurred, and perhaps it's useful to bring the internal and external into um, the same analytical uh, framework. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so terrific. So we always give our guest a chance to respond before we try to uh, grill him further. <laughs> so you can you can respond to that for a couple of minutes and then the floor will be open. Okay. Um, the, the, all right. The first point concerns um, the question of the distinction I make between uh, being preoccupied with legitimacy versus being concerned with a different question of how should Algerians be governed. And I, I'm, I'm making a sharp distinction, and I'm saying the FFS was preoccupied with the first and didn't properly address the second. Um, and uh, I would, on this point, I would make two sort of explanatory points. First, um, that um, uh, the problem of legitimacy uh, arises out of several factors that sort of converge. One of them being, and this is a difference with Morocco, 
uh, one of the reasons why the Riffian rebels make 18 specific itemized demands is that they're not contesting the legitimacy of the king. That's taken for granted. Uh, they are therefore not engaging in a revolutionary rebellion. They are, they're, they're engaging in a grievance-driven uh, um, qualified rebellion. Uh, there isn't an agreed locus of sovereignty in the Algerian case. This is a, a constant problem uh, of the Algerian state. Uh, the discourse says the people are sovereign, uh, but nobody acts as if they take that seriously. Uh, there is a sort of fundamental structural problem of the Algerian state, uh, the lack of an agreed uh, uh, recognized locus of sovereignty, meaning that legitimacy is in a sense uh, in question um, permanently. Um, the second element is that uh, the FLN... Uh, was in a sense uh, everybody and anybody uh, by the end of the war that um, constructing a government out of that was bound to involve uh, a painful combination of selective co-optation and some people don't get selected to be co-opted uh, and demobilization of forces that you no longer have any use for. This was a, a politically problematical process. It was unavoidable. There were people who were bound to be discontented. Ait Ahmed was one of them, and because he was uh, one of the nine historic chiefs, uh, he uh, was not prepared to take it lying down. Um, so there's those elements of an explanation of why, of, of why there should have been this, uh, pre, uh, this preeminent preoccupation with legitimacy. My critique of that is that I think it would have been far more useful uh, and not impossible uh, for the FFS to use the question of legitimacy as a lever uh, in, uh, to gain uh, reforms. The point about the way the, the issue of legitimacy has been used is that it has not been used uh, in order to press for changes that would make the regime more legitimate. It hasn't been used uh, um, in that way. Uh, it has been used um, as simply a stick to beat the regime with uh, in a way that has had no... Um, dividend in terms of useful political change. Um, that's the, the explanation of my own critique. Um, now, why should there be this obsession with legitimacy? That uh, brings me to a second uh, question that links up with your third and your point about the international dynamics, and you mentioned the legacy of colonialism. And one of the elements of the context in 62-63 was, of course, the fact that uh, a revolution had occurred. The revolutionary tradition had swept away, eclipsed everything that preceded it. Uh, the idea of reform had been discredited because attempts at reform by anti-colonialist parties from the 20s to the early 50s had failed. They'd failed because uh, of the particular character of uh, Algeria as an integral part of the French state, meaning that um, uh, independence was uh, for decades unthinkable for French politicians. They couldn't consider it. So reform was seen as a failure. So uh, there is a kind of revolutionism uh, in the Algerian political field as a whole, uh, which the FFS simply remobilizes. Uh, there isn't a tradition of successful reform. I think that that is an important fact. It's not part of the Algerian experience, uh, and therefore it's not part of the repertoire. Um, I'm going beyond, of course, my paper in explaining this. Uh, um, I spent 15,000 words trying to explain certain things, leaving a lot of other things out. Um, the, um, the question of contained versus transgressive contention. My point about um, the contained contention uh, of the FFS from 89 onwards, uh, it's not that I'm saying it shouldn't have agreed to be contained. 
Uh, I'm saying that it plays uh, into the new game that the Algerian regime has, has uh, concocted by uh, bringing in a pluralist constitution and legalizing a lot of so-called political parties. What it never does is mount a serious critique of the deficits of the new dispensation, of the new system. Um, it doesn't say uh, we accept this, we will, we will work within it, however we're dissatisfied and we we're going to propose further changes that will um, amplify and deepen uh, the uh, incipient democratic content of this pluralist arrangement. It doesn't do that at all. A very striking fact is at no point does it argue that the National Assembly should have serious powers. That's a very important fact. The National Assembly remains uh, something of a scandalous laughingstock in Algeria. It's a rubber stamp. Um, and uh, in my view, a, a democratic party that uh, was, uh, had the opportunity to operate within the law in public, to organize, to hold meetings, to contest elections, uh, the next step had to be uh, demanding further democratic changes as reforms within the new framework. And it never did this. Uh, so I think that um, there's something gratuitous about its, its failure. It's not that it should have reverted to armed rebellion. Um, I'm, in other words, I'm saying, okay, it could have been a bit transgressive in a nonviolent way by organizing a an agitation for specific, necessary, and justifiable democratic reforms that would have um, taken the system beyond what uh, the Algerian uh, power holders uh, initially envisaged. And it didn't do this. Um, finally, the final point, um, going back to your third question about uh, international dynamics, uh, you're quite right. I do focus exclusively on internal dynamics because this is what, in my view, has been obscured. Um, but uh, I would entirely agree that um, not only the legacy of colonialism is one element of the international dynamics, I mentioned that already, but also the end of the Cold War and um, the way in which this involved, amongst other things, a resurgence, at least for a while, I think, um, a substantial uh, resurgence of French influence uh, in Algeria, on the Algerian political class, um, and uh, on the Algerian state. Uh, and um, if, if I was to incorporate that, that dimension into the analysis, it would require several more thousand words, but it would be, a valid, it would be an entirely appropriate extension of the analysis. I should stress this is, my paper is not an attempt to say everything that should be said about the FFS. Um, there, is, there are plenty of other angles, but one of them is the international aspect of the FFS, particularly uh, embodied in its um, uh, application for membership of the Socialist International, which was granted. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that part of Ait Ahmed's strategy uh, certainly from 92 onwards, if not before, was to play to an international audience. Um, and that is part of his strategy of, uh, in my view, um, requiring, forcing the Algerian power holders to reckon with him uh, as uh, someone uh, they have to, in a sense, recognize and deal with, but without actually mobilizing uh, um, the, uh, such international support or sympathy as the FFS was able to uh, glean uh, in the service of any particular democratic reform. Uh, when we see the FFS uh, really uh, moving vigorously on the international front, it's in the, in the mid-90s, particularly 96, 97, 98, on the issue of the massacres uh, and the demand for an international inquiry, something that uh, is, of course, um, a challenge to the Algerian regime, but not one with any particular democratic implications. 
Um, but there's, you're quite right. Um, the uh, a full, fully rounded thing, uh, consideration of the FFS, which I have not attempted, would certainly bring in the international dimension. All right, terrific. So thank you very much. So now we have uh, more than an hour for discussion, uh, which is great. Um, you're invited to say your name and your institutional affiliation when you speak, but you're not forced to, but it would be nice because it helps awesome. the group atmosphere. And, um, and uh, you know, you have time to, you don't just have to ask a super brief question because we have a certain amount of time, but, you, you know, you can, you're allowed to make a, a comment. Obviously, I'm not inviting long speeches, but, um, uh, and otherwise, um, talk loudly. And uh, if you just put your hand up and I'll write you down on a list and we'll probably take a group of questions and, and comments to begin with and then we'll revert to Hugh. So the floor is open. <coughs> My question uh, is about the foreign, Algerian foreign policy, and uh, in special uh, United States and uh, Russia. If the uh, excellent relation between Algeria and United States today, it uh, uh, have any uh, special impact in the uh, national Algerian situation. Okay, right. Let, we, let's take a few more, if you don't mind. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah. Um, Michael Willis from Oxford um, University. Um, thanks, Ivan. Job back immensely. I was just wondering whether you you portray the problems. That the, well, the failure of the FFS is a, a largely internal um, pr product of its own failures. To what extent do you think it was management by the regime that actually played a role as well? Particularly the successful um, portraying of the FFS as a purely Kabyle party that could never break through into the non-Kabyle elements. And that is a, a thing you hear regularly in Algeria. Oh, it's a the FFS, they're a Kabyle party. They, they, they have their own thing. It, 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 was it just uh, any comments you have on how the regime played the FFS rather than the FFS failure? Thank you. Thank you. Um, John Marks, Gospel of Information. Um, following on from Mike's point there, um, to what degree do you think that the FFS, from its part, actually suffered and held itself back by being? identified as a, a Kabyle party, and particularly even from part of cabinet, not even at times the whole of cabinet. And as a second question, you, 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 you mentioned absolutely pertinently um, Ahmed's um, status as a Zayn in the party and, and his Marabutic lineage. To what, to what extent do you think that um, the FFS was actually held back, um, as well as projected onto the national stage by the um, literally sainted um, Hussein al mm. Thank you. And there's just one more over there. Didn't, didn't you have your hand up, lady at the back? 
was that my imagination? Can I? Oh. Can I? Sure. Um, I'm just following on to, to, to John, um, the, the Mrahutique identification of Aikafna, which you mentioned. Um, um, is, is, that gen is, is, is it your impression that that's a general phenomenon that might run across the Kabyle and non-Kabyle groups, that um, people with political ambitions perhaps tend or to have um, a Mrahutique background somewhere on which, to which they can turn, on which they can rely, um, which is a generator of, um, of, of loyalty, um, assobia, or whatever you care to call it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. You've got four questions on the table. First one, uh, do you, do you, I, can, I, I should repeat them for the podcast, unless you repeat them at the beginning of each one. Uh, all right, I'll do that. Uh, Najib, if I heard your name, from Madrid. Um, question about Algerian foreign policy, in particular Algeria's relations with the U.S. on the one hand, Russia on the other. Um, and the question, as I understood it, was what impact has this had on the dynamics of internal politics? Um, and um, I would say that um, hmm, there's no doubt that uh, in the early years, um, the relations not so much uh, with uh, – relations with Russia mattered for the uh, – in the defense uh, um, policy as a source of, of procurement of, of weapons, and that has continued. Um, the, at the same time, this was qualified certainly from the late 60s, early 70s onwards by um, an orientation to the North American market for hydrocarbons. Uh, so there was an element of, um, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, in, the, in the strategy, um, and um, during the socialist phase, which is basically the phase of Ben Bella and Boumediene, but no, be not beyond that, they were emphatic that, of course, Algerian socialism was not Marxist, not atheist. It uh, was consistent with Islam, and this was an important element of the regime discourse, and I think to be taken seriously. Um, the other element here of the relationship to the Americans uh, was that this was, um, I believe, intended and seen in Algiers as uh, a necessary element of uh, the regime's uh, commercial diversification, reducing its dependence on France. And this became a very important issue in the factional conflict within the regime in the course of the 1980s. Uh, and the success of the French in um, recovering their influence in Algeria um, was in some degree at the expense of the American connection. Uh, and that had... Um, um, that whole issue was something that played into factional conflict. You know, to the extent to which it played into wider internal politics is less obvious. Um, I hope that will do for, as uh, elements of uh, an approach to that question. Um, but I think that you could say that um, the, uh, the salience of the French, um, particularly in the early years of the crisis from 88, 89 onwards, uh, the importance of French coverage of the Algerian situation, the extent to which the rest of the Western world tended to rely on French coverage, uh, um, was a factor inciting various Algerian uh, political forces to address French audiences, and, and the FFS was certainly one of those. It was very noticeable in the early years uh, the extent to which the coverage of the Algerian crisis by the French daily Libération basically was the FFS view, um, or, came, or was very close to it. Um, Is that in the 1960s? No, in the, 19, uh, 19, uh, the, the, the period of 88, 89, 90, uh, the period of the crisis, which is the early years of the, um, the new pluralist dispensation. 
Um, so you get, you get various uh, political forces investing in uh, the French media, uh, seeking uh, a sympathetic understanding of their point of view uh, there. Um, Mike's question, um, p totally pertinent question, uh, and uh, I want to be fair. A part of me doesn't want to be too fair. But uh, to be fair to the FFS, yes, of course, um, it wasn't in a sense only contained. One could say it was constrained contention, uh, and that's an aspect of the story that I'm still trying to uh, get further information on. There's no doubt in my mind that the regime always possessed a considerable capacity to put the newly legalized parties under considerable pressure. No doubt about it. Uh, and I think that um, a, a really um, a fair assessment of Ait Ahmed's conduct of his party would want to take that fully into account. I can't really go into much detail, but I think that's a totally valid point you've raised there. Uh, and I hope to be able to address it a little bit more fully subsequently. Um, John's, uh, John Mark's question uh, was the fact that the FFS was widely seen or portrayed, presented as a, a purely cabal affair, a handicap. Clearly it was a handicap, and one which I think Ait Ahmed was conscious of from the beginning. He was very concerned, as I, as I mentioned, uh, in 63, uh, not to identify um, the FFS as a Kabyle movement, uh, not taking up the Berber identity issue at all, uh, or the Kabyle regional interest at all, something that many of his followers in the FFS were frustrated by because they cared about one or other or both of those things. But it was consistent with his um, concern to be remobilizing the revolution against the allegedly counter-revolutionary Ben Bella regime. To do that, and he was, of course, a founder member of the FLN, he had to stay within the tradition of nationalism. Uh, and he had tried to um, get uh, the FFS um, to mobilize uh, support beyond Kabylia. I mention uh, the fact that there were um, supporters of the FFS, active ones in Wilaya 4, in the Algerois. Uh, I, I give a little detail on that. Uh, um, if I was going to give um, a bit more detail, there was um, a, a, a small and very ineffectual maquis in the east of Algeria, uh, for a while, it was uh, in the North Constantinois, but it was actually organized by people from the South Constantinois, for, by Shawi Berbers, uh, who didn't have any local support base, and it, it, it was a fiasco. There was also um, a, a brief insurgency in, in the Southwest, in the Sud Orane, uh, led by a local figure who had been a, a, um, an officer of the ALN during the War of Liberation, uh, who was, um, if you like, nominally linked to the FFS. But this was inadequate. Uh, there's no doubt that the core of the FFS was in Kabylia. Uh, and, it w and that rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, it was perceived by most Algerians elsewhere as essentially a Kabyle thing. Um, you also um, suggested that maybe a, a further handicap was the FFS's identification with only part of Kabylia. And I do mention in the paper the fact that a very significant number of distinguished Kabyles opposed the FFS in 63, including um, uh, guerrilla veterans, colonels. Uh, there was a division of opinion in Kabylia. Uh, there were people who, whatever their private feelings about Ben Bella, um, thought Ait Ahmed's uh, moves were um, uh, foolish, uh, were folly, and didn't agree with it. Um, as to whether there was a handicap arising out of an identification with just one part of Kabila, I think that uh, his standing in the Wilaya of Satif 
uh, in Lesser Kabylia in 1962 may have expressed an ambition to develop a support base beyond uh, the area that he was actually from. But uh, you're actually right. There were significant elements in the uh, Maquis, in the guerrilla, uh, the guerrilla veterans um, of Wilaya III in Lesser Kabylia who never uh, were attempted to join the FFS. And one of the reasons for that was that they had had enough of being run during the War of Liberation by people from Greater Kabylia. There was a kind of Lesser Kabylia sort of resentment uh, of all these Grand Kabyles. Uh, the greater capital. So that was a factor. Um, as for, I can't remember quite what your question was about no, no, Zayn. Exactly. What about it? Yeah. Oh, I see. The uh, negative influence on the conduct of Identified with him. Like, for example, when was it in 89 when he sat down in London Hilton with Ben Bella? 80, 80, 85. 85. Yeah. Even longer ago. And the incongruous pair, um, you know, clearly that, that worried other people within the FFS, but by then you see Attackman's basically taken over the party. And from all those years in Switzerland, on, if you mention to anyone in the FFS, you know, is it embarrassing that your leader um, is in Switzerland and doesn't come back and the people who didn't necessarily believe the, all, all the claims he would be at murdered the minute he came back to Cabinet. Did that actually also hold back the party? I think so. I think so. I, I think that um, just very briefly, and it's something I, I, I mentioned in the paper, that his strategy, his very sort of Zionist strategy of being uncontested and taking care not to allow any risk of being contested by appointing personally the first secretaries and rotating them. Uh, you can understand that as uh, taking, uh, making sure that no younger figure will acquire the stature within the party capable of challenging le vieux, the old man. Uh, and I think that that involved, as I say in the paper, a considerable wastage, a, a significant percentage of people who served as first secretary subsequently leave the FFS. Uh, I know I've met some of them and interviewed them, and I think that this was a wastage of talent. Uh, it's a kind of an instance of a broader Algerian phenomenon of the, the old generation never letting go, uh, not allowing the younger generation really to um, prepare itself to uh, replace them. Um, so I think yes is the answer to that question. Um, the John, will that do for the moment, John? Does that? Okay, John, John King's question um, is the Maraboutic aspect of uh, Ait Ahmed's own career. Um, um, it's simply an instance of a general phenomenon in Algeria. Uh, and the answer is um, up to a point. Yes, uh, there's no doubt that other. Um, quite a significant number of other <clears throat> prominent players in Algerian politics have been from Maraboutic families, and I think that that's connected uh, to, this is just a hypothesis, to two particular aspects of, of having that uh, relationship. One is that uh, the Imravdan or the Marabtin uh, were for generations and generations and generations the only element of the society of the countryside that were literate, that uh, had any kind of instruction. So they've had a head start, if you like, 
sons of those families have had a head start in political life. It's striking that several key figures in the Algerian communist movement are from Maraboutic backgrounds. Uh, never mind the whole problem of Islam and Marxism, they're, they, they are literate, they got into theory, and of course one doctrine can replace another. Um, and, uh, so it's, and actually one of the leaders of the Algerian Communist Party was from Aithwathiran, from this, uh, this Arsh in Lesser Kabylia. Um, so this, this Arsh has produced a member of the uh, reformist Olama for the Al-Wathilani and also uh, a leading light of the Algerian Communist Party. So yes, uh, but not exclusively so. There are plenty of people who have been prominent uh, in Algerian politics from non-Maraboutic backgrounds. Um, ben Bella for one, Boumedien for another, uh, Shadley for another. So uh, it's not a necessary condition. All right, so we have gentlemen here to begin. Ah, to get hold of the paper, you register for the event, and then you, as soon as you register, you're sent the paper. That's the general format for all these these seminars. But you can certainly do so retroactively, and uh, just send me an email. Yeah, send me an email, John Chowcraft, and I'll send you the paper. Very welcome. Ah, well, we're very sorry. And, um, you know, please, will you send me an email as well? And I'll, John Chowcraft, you can Google it, and uh, then I'll send you the paper. Sure, sure. Can I ask a question, please, if I may? Ayt Ahmed was a very charismatic leader, and when he stepped down in 2013, the FFS actually, more or less, its importance or its impact was diluted within the uh, political uh, landscape in Algeria. Uh, do you think that is the, the case? And uh, the second question, if I may, uh, what impact did the uh, Cold War, uh, the end of the Cold War, rather, had on Algeria's relations with African states? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And then we have a gentleman here. Thanks, uh, yeah, Nick Thorne from the uh, Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Um, yeah, my question is going to relate to the uh, future prospects of the FFS. Um, first of all, I mean, you know, what prospects do you think it has for the future, particularly given the death of Ike Ahmed and maybe the opportunities that that presents for perhaps uh, younger members of the organization to take it forward, or conversely, if that means that it was a one man party? that makes it difficult. Um, secondly, kind of what impact do you think the 2016 constitution might have, either in terms of presenting new opportunities um, for the parliament to be more active, or conversely, whether you think maybe it's just window dressing and um, you know, no real concrete change. Um, and thirdly, if the FFS fades away and fizzles, you know, post the death of Ayat Ahmed, is there then an opportunity or prospects for other parties to try and take up its mantle? Thank you. Thank you. Good. Gentlemen here. Uh, Asim Azir, thank you very much for your wonderful presentation. I didn't catch your name, I'm sorry. Asim Azir. A quick question. In, in your paper, um, you point to the inability of the FFS to push through or make realistic demands for, for reform and the 
you refer to the example of the Mahda in 97 um, by bringing forth demands to have um, party officials present um, as observers. And you also refer to the fact that this is not an isolated incident. Peace aside, can you give us more examples of where other parties have um, pushed through uh, their own demands and so on? And also, can you hear more about where this wasted talent went uh, within the party, some of the, the wasted talent within the effort? Where did they go to? And also, finally, the role of uh, Kabili Diaspora uh, and FFS. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, let's have let's have another two, and so you first, and then you, yeah, and then we'll go back to here. Excuse me. Riccardo Fabiani, Group. My question is: Well, you mentioned revolution as a as an ideology, almost I would say, in Nigerian context, and how the question of legitimacy is more important than the question of political change. So, how do you see? the current strategy of the FFS, which seems to focus on a negotiated transition with the FLN and with the, well, let's say with the Algerian regime. Do you see this as continuity, as an example of continuity with the past strategy pursued by the FFS, or do you see this as actually something different from what I have meant Continuity in the present with regard to uh, the regime or opposition parties or all of the above or something else? No, as in, you know, the, the focus on legitimacy uh, and not on political change. Do you think that the current focus of the FFS on neg negotiated transition with the regime is, in the, is an element of continuity with the past or does it represent mm -hmm. actually a break from the past? Okay, thank you. And then one more and then we'll revert to uh, Hugh. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Um, I was the lucky recipient of your paper, and I was very struck um, by your statement that the FFS bears a very substantial responsibility for the absence of democracy in Nigeria, and your comments have obviously uh, backed that up. But I'm just wondering, particularly on a couple of the instances you mentioned of uh, the invitation by President Zerwal in the mid-90s uh, to discuss the potential rehabilitation of uh, the at that time, and also his proposed constitutional reforms. In both these instances, uh, you, you go into detail about how the FFS refused to take part, or actually denounced Zerwal as having, having dictatorial tendencies. I'm just wondering, I mean, as the counter-argument could be, how, how strong indeed was Zerwal's position actually pushes through, even if the parties in question smaller parties and opposition parties that actually, well, you can get to this in your answer, um, if they had indeed backed these initiatives, to what extent really would they have acted as a counterforce to what was then a much stronger eradicator uh, force within the military? Um, and when, if ever, there realistically be opportunities within Algeria, particularly after the outbreak of violence in the 19th Okay, so thank you very much. Oh, you loaded you up with a string <laughs> of questions. <laughs> uh, right, Ali. 
Uh, I find it very charismatic. I entirely agree. Uh, that's one of the reasons I suggest that the FFS actually was more like a tariqa than a political party. Uh, his position was more that of a sh charismatic sheikh than a zaim, in fact. Um, now he's retired. Uh, the FFS is clearly uh, diminished by this, by his departure from the scene. Um, there is, of course, the problem of routinization of charisma, and the, he's a, clearly a, an impossible act to follow. And uh, the, he, there is no single president of the FFS now. And what, the, the, the ploy they've used was to establish what they call a, an instance présidentielle, consisting of five people. In other words, the FFS has done for itself what the regime did when they got rid of Shadley. They, they put in a five-man high-state committee, and this is, in, this is part of the Algerian uh, syndrome, if you like, the pendulum swinging from uh, collective leadership to the Zaim, or the one-man show, and then back to collective leadership. Uh, the question is, can this five-man collective leadership uh, steer the FFS uh, in a direction that gives it a future. Uh, and uh, the, well, if you want to bet on that, go ahead. I'm not personally inclined to bet on it, uh, partly because the five-man uh, presidency has now been reduced to four men because four of them have purged the fifth. Um, I think that there is a big problem. Um, and I, I think that, uh, um, well, you know, I don't pretend to have the, the capacity to foresee things, but I think there is a fundamental existential problem now for the FFS. Um, the um, end of the Cold War impact on Algeria's relations with Africa. This is slightly off my, my topic, um, but it, it was striking that um, the uh, Boumediene regime um, and uh, the Ben Bella regime uh, took very seriously Algeria's relations with Africa. This was part of the regime's strategy during the first two decades. Um, with the recovery of French influence, this element of the Algerian state strategy tended to uh, wither a bit, uh, to, to de decline. Um, it was re-emphasized, actually, by President Zerouar. And I can remember, I think it was Jeune Afrique uh, having a, a cover picture of President Zerouar attending an African Union summit, Zerouar l'Africain. Uh, this is something that has, that has been a variable. When was that? Uh, this would have been in 1995, I think. Uh, it may have been 96. Um, and it obviously, like the U.S. connection, links up with the French connection. There's, there's an element of zero-sum games, or at any rate, tensions here, um, with the more nationalist or independentist wing of the uh, regime wanting to emphasize and invest in uh, the African strategy. Of course, partly because this connects up with the preoccupation of Western Sahara, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but... Um, uh, I think that the point is that the end of the Cold War, insofar as it has facilitated a recovery of French influence, has uh, put that element of the Algerian state strategy under a good deal of pressure. Um, the, uh, Nick Thorne, um, thank you for your question. The future prospects um, of the FFS, well, in a sense, I've said something about that, um, but let me be more specific in relation to the third question you asked, um, um, or was it 
No, well, anyway, um, if the F you asked the question, if the FFS fades away, what takes its place? Well, the fact of the matter is something has been growing in Kabylia at the expense of both the FFS and its, uh, its old rival, the RCD, and that is the autonomy movement. Um, it's, uh, in a way, um, it's very striking. The two issues that Ait Ahmed refused to articulate in 63, uh, a Kabyl regional interest, and the Amazigh uh, identity issue totally refused to, to, to act as an advocate or to represent those concerns, have now been very, very fully uh, articulated by the Berberist movement, uh, the Amazigh identity movement on the one hand since uh, 1980, um, something that Said Saadi's RCD is in a sense uh, evolved out of, uh, and now, with the rise of the autonomous movement, um, and that dates from 2001, uh, the so-called MAC, the Mouvement pour l'Autonomie de la Kabylie, and it's now kept the same acronym but changed the meaning. It's now the movement for the self-determination, l'autodétermination de la Kabylie. This is a movement um, that um, is explicitly capital, that basically says... Uh, to hell with the Berber identity thing, uh, the other Berbers are not joining us uh, to any real effect. Uh, let's face it, we're Kabyles and uh, our concerns are rooted in, our, in the particular situation of, of Kabylia and our particular preoccupation. So um, the autonomy movement um, has made a lot of headway um, in the... In the first two or three years, it, it, had, it was very largely based in the diaspora. I'm now answering someone else's question, I think, about the, the role of the di diaspora. M Mr. Yeah. Um, Hamazia's question. Uh, your question. Second. The second of your questions. The third question. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> You're quite right. But that's um, okay. um, the, uh, and w I was doing field work in Kabylia um, in the early 2000, 2003, and... and all the people who were active in Kabylia then were very dismissive of the autonomy movement. Well, times have changed. Um, it's now the loudest voice in the region. Um, I'm not sure that um, this is going to uh, continue to be the case, but it is the loudest voice. The fact of the matter is that the FFS and the RCD have been um, securing diminishing returns for many years. Uh, they have failed to deliver anything in particular. Um, and people have lost interest in them. So I think the, we're, there is a, what looks like a pretty remorseless decline of both those parties, and more generally uh, a decline of popular belief in the, the pluralist formula as offering them anything in particular. And I, I, that's one of the reasons why I think the FFS bears some responsibility. It didn't seize uh, uh, opportunities that I believe were there originally. Um, the... Um, other question, so th that's basically my answer to that. You raised an, a, a question about the impact of the 2016 Constitution. It's a little early to say. On the other hand, it's, one is very tempted to say that every time the regime rewrites the Constitution, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Um, and uh, it certainly hasn't made much difference yet. Um, the, of course, the regime has made the Berber language an official language. That's words. What does it mean in practice? Um, well, wait and see. Um, the, uh, I think the, the lack of interest in the recent legislative elections uh, held just a, a couple of weeks ago is indicative of the failure of these constitutional changes to mean anything much to public opinion. Um, and I don't think they can be made to mean anything unless 
uh, a political party that is perceived as quite distinct from the regime uh, picks up the ball and runs in an interesting direction with it. Um, the, uh, okay, uh, I hope that'll do, Nick. Um, I didn't catch your first name, Mr. Ham Hamazia. Adel, thank you. Uh, I think we've met before, no? Um, perhaps uh, in LSE. Okay, <laughs> at my Berber government talk. Okay, pleased to see you again. Um, the uh, failure of the FFS to push reforms, you, you asked me to instance other cases where other parties have secured reforms. Yes, what I actually, I think, meant in my paper was there were other instances of the FFS failing to secure reforms rather than other instances of parties securing reforms. But could you say, is your critique directed at the FFS or at all the political parties in Algeria? Um, the, the, let me say this. Um, it's a more general point. The, it's a point I've made elsewhere. Um, and it has a bearing on the question of, of how hard one should be on Aitahmet. Uh, and in other words, there's a, there's a kind of plea of in mitigation that one could enter an indulgence. The regime, in my view, uh, having uh, introduced this new pluralist dispensation, um, I've argued years ago that this was um, the deficits mattered, that this was a very far fell a very long way short of a democratic uh, system. Uh, in fact, I argued that it's, uh, I called it pluralism without enfranchisement, because in my view, what the regime has done, I think deliberately, is to arrange matters so that you have a, a plethora of political parties, none of which can ever really get anywhere. Uh, you have, um, if you look at the legislative elections from 1997 onwards, uh, there is no to use the French term that is used in Algeria, there's no possibility of real alternance. Uh, you have a majority that is permanent, the FLN plus the RND, plus usually the tame Islamist party, the MSP, uh, functioning as a majority. All the other parties can never ever be anything but opposition, quote unquote, parties. Uh, and what is at issue in the legislative elections, therefore, is how many seats does, there, does their tally go from 14 to 20, or from 20 back down to 14 or whatever. Um, in other words, uh, little secondary careers are at stake, but there's no possibility of these parties actually achieving anything, um, or very little possibility, um, short of their joining forces and engaging in a very, very vigorous uh, democratic agitation that would, of course, be a high-risk thing to do. Um, the, um, in that context, uh, it's striking that the regime's attitude to the more serious of these opposition parties has been to put them under pressure. I'm coming back to this question of, of constraints, the pressure put on the FFS and on other parties. And the case of Enada is actually a good example because uh, when Enada uh, made a breakthrough um, getting 30 seats uh, in 1997, uh, that was the beginning of the end for its leader because what the regime then succeeds in doing is splitting it uh, between a tendency within the party that is willing to accept co-optation into an enlarged majority. Sorry. And that tendency in, uh, incarnated in the founder of Ennada, Abdallah Jabala, that wanted to remain in opposition, 
but as an opposition party with interesting ideas. In my view, uh, uh, Jabala was the most interesting of the Islamist leaders. Uh, his party, he wanted his party to be a party of programmatic opposition. Uh, and that's something the regime clearly didn't like. Uh, and it has twice managed to uh, foment divisions within parties controlled by uh, Jawala. Jawala uh, has twice founded parties and lost control of them. Uh, and I don't think the regime has been innocent in that process. Uh, I think it's uh, widely understood in Algeria that the regime has infiltrated everything. Um, so um, those are elements of an answer. Um, the, uh, offhand, I can't think of another case where a party has had some bright ideas and, and managed to persuade the regime to accept them. But the ANADA did do this on the question of access for party observers to the special vote. Um, and this was accepted. Um, so the, the critique of FFS could apply to many other parties in Algeria? Except that the FFS had advantages they didn't have. Oh, right. uh, considerable advantages. Okay. And it, okay. in my view, didn't really okay. uh, make good use of them. This brings me to um, Adil's other question. Um, where did the lieutenants disappear to? Yes. The wastage. Where, uh, the wastage. Um, Karim Tabu has tried to found, he's one of the people who left, um, he's tried to found his own party. In my view, this was not the right move. Um, I think that it's a total waste of time trying to found parties in Algeria. This is not what the situation calls for. Uh, I don't think he's got very far. Uh, Said Khalil has never tried to found another party. Uh, he's uh, kind of accepted a role as a, a, a sage. He's, the years come and go, he gets older. Um, he's, uh, he's organized a, a network, but it hasn't pretended to be a political party. He's someone who is listened to, which is something. He's a lucid person. Um, but um, basically, they go nowhere. Um, and this is part of a, a problem where um, people have kind of got used to the idea that uh, either you have your own political party or you're, you're, you're not a player. Um, and that's, part of, that's, part of, uh, that's another aspect of the syndrome that none of these forces are able to transcend. Um, uh, I've said something about the diaspora. I think that the, the diaspora has been very important in pushing the autonomy view. Uh, I think that this uh, is something that, as I say, it's gained ground in, within the region, but my own guess is that um, public opinion in Kabylia is far from fully convinced of the autonomy thing. It's the, it's the, the, the noise that is loudest. Um, because the other voices have kind of lost confidence in themselves. Um, but I'm not sure at all that people uh, are committed to it. Kabyle uh, public opinion, in my view, I was last there last August, uh, is sort of low wait and see, uh, weighing things up, interested in listening, interested in having these issues discussed very far from fully committed. Whereas in the diaspora, I think the tendency of the diaspora Kabyles is to be completely committed in a kind of utopian spirit. A small uh, question <laughs> thrown in. <laughs> the, 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 I, I mentioned the paper in the paper the, the so-called Black Spring of 2001 when young Kabyles rioted and got themselves shot dead by the gendarmes in a, an absolutely appalling 
series of events that were without precedent since independence. It was absolutely traumatic. Um, the RCD tried to gloss the, the riots as being about the Berber language, which was rubbish. Uh, the FFS tried to suggest it's because uh, what we need is to have a constituent assembly, which was a utopian uh, notion. It wasn't about either of those things. The young men of Kabylia were rioting on exactly the same basis that the young men of Algiers rioted in 1988. Uh, they were rioting against le malvie. They were rioting against unemployment, the fact they had no futures, the fact that the ec economic situation in Kabylia was extremely depressed that no one seemed to give a damn, no one was doing anything about it. Uh, and as that one of them said, you can't kill us, we're already dead. Um, and what was so striking was the failure of the two Kabyle parties to articulate the outlook of the rioters. Completely failed to do it. And that is indicative of what I refer to without fully developing in the paper, the question of the relationship of the FFS to the public. It's not a representative relationship. Um, and the, um, so you have this situation where the, um, the, the poor, the unemployed, the desperate in Kabylia, who have multiplied, they were not very visible or audible when I was living in Kabylia many decades ago. I'm not going to say exactly how many, but um, Kabylia was, was booming in those days. People were optimistic. I'm talking about the 70s, actually. Um, when I was there in August, my impression was that the economy had picked up. There was a, quite a lot more economic activity, but mainly in the service sector. What one was seeing was new cafes, new restaurants, new service establishments of various kinds, quite a lot of money floating around. Um, not a significant uh, uptick in manufacturing industry and the employment that generates. Um, but a less depressed mood nonetheless. None that, but at the same time, the autonomy outlook uh, gaining ground, at least uh, verbally. Um, okay, um, I think I still need to deal with Ricardo's. Yeah. Have I, where, where's Ricardo? Yeah, Sorry. Continuity. Over there. <clears throat> um, yes. Um, you, uh, uh, your first question was about the revolutionary tradition or the revolutionism. I forget exactly what your question was, but um, so I, can you remind me briefly? Well, it was actually one question. Okay, okay, one question, got it, I got it, I got it, okay. Um, my point here is that um, the FFS, uh, in a sense, in 63, Ait Ahmed's rhetoric is about licensing himself to relaunch the revolutionary tradition against the regime by denying the regime's revolutionary credentials by insisting they're actually counter-revolutionary because they're neo-fascists. You can see it's, this is a, actually wordplay. It's rhetorical um, maneuvering. Um, and, but I point out that that was actually a radicalization of Ait Ahmed's rhetoric because before September 63, he had been saying something rather different. Uh, and what he'd been saying was, um, we've got disarray, we need to overcome the disarray by getting everybody to meet up in a party congress when we can all talk to and respect one another. Uh, and uh, it, I suggest that the, f the, the earlier ploy, which was non-revolutionist, was a typical... Uh, Marabou's ploy of being the mediator, of, of bringing about unity where disunity prevails by mediating. And the second ploy was the Marabou's alternative ploy of leading a jihad. Do you see the logic of this? Perhaps it's not entirely self-evident to people who are not familiar with Maghrebi Marabou's. Um, Ali, do you see the logic? 
uh, don't answer the question. Um, but the point here is that you, what I'm saying is Ait Ahmed had two tactics. And he tries one and then tries the other. One is peaceful non-jihadi, doesn't call Ben Bella a fascist, says we need to have a party congress, let's all meet and talk to each other as brothers. Um, in other words, reunifying the revolutionary elite. And the second one is a, a radicalization uh, claiming to remobilize the revolution against a regime now denounced as, as counter-revolutionary. So the FFS in recent years has been engaging in a laborious process that I didn't bother to mention. Uh, it's actually part of the story. It's part of the story of the last few years um, of promoting, trying to promote a consensus on the need for consensus. It's been a rather bizarre ballet where the FFS has been saying, what we need is consensus. And what you all need is to come together with us under our aegis and leadership in agreeing to agree. Uh, and uh, this has been a rather strange thing that, uh, in my view, uh, I haven't seen a, um, what I would regard as a convincing explanation of it. But I uh, would offer a tentative explanation. There are various things I left out of my paper for various good reasons, but if you impress me, a tentative explanation of this is that uh, with this, the FFS is reverting to the non-revolutionist uh, antagonistic attitude. It's reverting to the... Um, we can be helpful by helping to promote unity, which was Aitachman's position in the early summer of 63. Do you see what I'm saying? There is a, this is not actually breaking with the DNA. Um, why is it doing this? It's doing this, I think, for two reasons. Uh, one is that following the riots of 2011, when there was a rash of nationwide rioting in Algeria, which then fizzled out, and in a sense this was... Uh, Algeria failing to have its intifada, failing to have its Arab Spring, and I think that's actually an, an achievement the Algerians should be quite pleased with. The, the, an Arab Spring was not something that would have done them any good, and of course many of them say we had it in 1988. Um, you had uh, a lot of talk about uh, the need for change, uh, and the FFS began to sort of push the idea, yes, but there needs to be consensus on change. So it's seeing a role for it, without actually having anything specific to offer. When you ask the question, consensus on what? It's got no proposition at all. It's getting it back to front in that sense. Um, but in my view, there is an explanation for that. And when you look more closely at its discourse, it's saying we need to have a, we need to have a consensus or rather, in a sense, reaffirm a consensus on the les constants nationales, the, 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 the elements of the Algerian identity. It's actually about reaffirming uh, Algerian national unity. And I think why it's doing this, a suggestion would be, this is an oblique reaction to the growth of the autonomy movement in Kabylia. It's looking for, by um, trying to sort of shepherd other little political parties and get them all to meet with the, at the FFS's initiative in some hotel near Algiers uh, to have a meeting to discuss the need for a consensus on consensus. It's actually looking to invest in the idea of Algerian national unity as something that um, it has reason to think is actually now being threatened by the autonomous movement in Kabylia. That at least would, ex would, would give to what it's doing a kind of 
coherent rationale. Um, but it doesn't seem to be getting very uh, anywhere in particular. I think it's more of a holding operation. Um, Final question was... Claire. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> uh, Robert says the FFS bears responsibility, and Claire suggests, well, Zarawal's invitation, it wouldn't have led anywhere anyway, right? Zarawal's memorandum, who, who cares? Uh, you're, you're sort of poo-pooing those elements of my argument. Fair enough. This is my reply. Yeah, okay, you're challenged. You'll be fine, fine. No, I accept the challenge. I accept the challenge. I, uh, I've, I've misparaphrased you. All right. First, Zerwal's invitation was not only uh, um, extended to or accepted by minor parties. It was accepted by the FLN. Um, a lot of people still believe that it was the FLN that cancelled the elections, overthrew Shadley and banned the feast. This is not true at all. The party of the FLN, what I call the PFLN, to d distinguish it from the historic wartime revolutionary movement, the PFLN was then under the leadership of Abdel Hamid Mehri, who uh, was uh, totally opposed to what the army did and, and managed to and led the, his party into opposition to the military-backed junta, or high state committee and sustained that until um, a little coup was organized within the FLN, PFLN, uh, that got rid of Mehri and brought the PFLN back to heel. Um, so there was also Ben Bella's MDA. So you had substantial, relatively substantial parties, the FLN, or PFLN, the MDA, Saidzadeh's RCD, which is not, a, not, not a nothing. It represents a, a significant element of Kabyle opinion. Um, uh, so, and, and for that matter, Hamas and the Nata, the, 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 the constitutional Islamist party that represented something. So, my point is that, um, as I say in my paper, there's no guarantee that Zarawal's initiative was certain to succeed, but what is clear is the FFS refused to contribute to make an effort to put its shoulder to the wheel. It was very striking. What Zerol was trying to do was what the FFS had been advocating for a long time. And then when push comes to shove, the FFS refuses to participate. I'm saying that this is a significant feature of its behavior. Um, not that Zerol's invitation would have succeeded. I think it would have had a better chance. Um, on the memorandum, uh, again, I give a reason in my paper why I, I think that memorandum was very interesting and why uh, I think that the central proposal to uh, establish an upper house for the national parliament was actually something that people advocating the position that the FFS was advocating, the so-called conciliatory position. Uh, in other words, we must end the violence by a negotiation. That negotiation requires some talking to the, to the fees, which requires some willingness to rehabilitate it. Uh, if you follow the logic of that all the way, it would actually mean re-legalizing the feast, and that would then carry the danger that the feast would simply go on and win another massive majority, and you'd be back to square one with an election result that the regime couldn't cope with. Um, and I suggested that um, by bringing, creating an upper house that would be an institutional curb on uh, an irresponsible majority in the lower house, in the National Assembly, that would actually facilitate the conciliator um, policy. Uh, and I don't think that Ait Ahmed didn't understand that. 
Uh, instead of uh, supporting it, he uh, opposes it very, very vehemently, saying that this is dictatorial, anti-democratic, and Zerowal is a dictator, when in fact, if you look at other elements of the constitutional change Zerowal was proposing, he was limiting himself to two terms. He was creating a, a, a special court that could try the president of the republic for malpractice in office. He wasn't uh, assuming dictatorial powers. He was doing the opposite. So my point is that... Um, not to uh, defend, although I think there was virtue in both of these initiatives by Zarab, but, but simply part of the portrait of the FFS. Uh, why did it behave the way it did? And, I, and I've, my answer is because its preoccupation is not to improve the regime, but on the contrary, to continue to have a regime that it can denounce. Uh, the legitimacy preoccupation means that it has no interest in reform. Because the more you reform the regime, the more legitimate it becomes. That, in my view, is the, is the, the, the actual rather unattractive logic of, of its behavior. Um, All right, very good. So, that's terrific. And um, we do, even though I'm sure for those who are fasting, this is a, a marathon, but that's all to the good. And, uh, but we, so we do have time for some more questions. Uh, I, I would like to throw one in, and, and, and there's one here and one here, but mine, I want to push you a bit on the framing of the paper, yep. because it's framed in the sense that there's a narrative that the FFS was democratic, and, and here, here's your thesis that it, what, that it didn't really put forward systematic democratic demands. And I just, I mean, uh, I, 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 of course there's that narrative that happened in Algeria or in particular sectors, yeah, it's a fighter for democracy, but in the larger scholarly literature, and I don't, is there, how, how extensive are the claims that the FFS was putting forward democratic demands, and how, I mean, have you, I haven't noticed a huge pushback in this room. Oh, yes, the FFS was putting forward democratic demands. And, and I don't, I mean, how does it, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, a James McDougall or a Robert Malley or, or others who work, I mean, are they, do they, are they arguing that they did? Because it's quite familiar to me, this, what you're describing. I mean, Hisham Sharabi in the Palestinian case calls it neo-patrimonialism. I mean, the, 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 these, these, the, the, the independence generation, the, those who fought for independence, who took upon themselves the mantle of believing they had the right to rule and then clinging to power. I mean, right now in, in Palestine, you have Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazin. I mean, he's still there. He's 80-something, and he's not... He's, there's a huge wastage of talent. This is what the big complaint of that middle generation is. They come in, or with, or with uh, Yasser Arafat. I mean, this was... The sort of, you know, with, uh, with uh, Hanan Ashrawi, this old sort of patrimonial structure, these people had the right to be there, you couldn't dislodge them, they ran these networks, they acted like Zu'amat, and you have it in Lebanon, and, and so, in a way, it's, it's, I mean, very powerfully argued, but a kind of, uh, it doesn't surprise me hugely as a thesis, that they, and, and I mean, of course, the whole generation, say, in Egypt, from 2000 on, this was their thesis. The old political parties are doing nothing, so we have to get rid of them. And, uh, you, and you, you even have that, I mean, that sort of split in Bahrain. You have uh, a generation that says, well, there are political associations since 2001 too, but they're, you know, they're, not, they're, not, they're not really uh, pushing for reform, so we have to surge forward and do something outside of that framework. So uh, 
I, I, I just wondered if you could help us a bit with uh, with that with that framing. I mean, it's not to say that it's that that that's you know it's a powerful argument around uh, it seems around the, the practices of the FFS. Uh, but I, but is it who are you, who which are you surprising a particular group of scholars or or what's your who's your target in that larger uh, scholarly literature? <laughs> and there's a couple more questions. Sorry, yes, Michael again, and then one from here. If I'm with another second go, thank you, Hugh. Um, you mentioned about the FFS not wanting to um, support initiatives that other parties have moved on. And I was, um, last year I was in Algeria and trying to look at why the FFS was so lukewarm at this opposition party initiative, the CNLTD, etc. Um, and the Mazaf group. Yeah. And I, I spoke to the head of the parliamentary group, uh, was it Boesh? I can't remember his name. And he said, oh, well, you see, the other parties, they're obsessed with Bouteflika. They just want to replace Bouteflika. They're all former regime people who want to replace Bouteflika. We want a consensus. We want to change the whole system. When we've never been part of the system. And I want to know how much credibility you give to that. Was that Ikhlef Boeshi? No, no, it wasn't. Sha Sha oh, oh, Shabab Awaish. Yeah, yeah, okay. The head of the parliamentary group, I think. Yes, yeah. that's right. That was his explanation. I need to know what, what credibility to give to that. Um, on the, the issue of them not never making initiatives themselves, what contribution do you think they made to the Rome Peace Accords in putting that together? That was a fairly positive set of um, um, pronouncements. Or do you see other parties and other figures playing a bigger role in a more positive things that were suggested in the Roman Peace Accords of 1995. And this is a final thing, sort of coming back to what Adler said about the, um, the FFF, FF, um, the people who were sort of wasted away from the FFS. Um, I, I was always surprised when I go to Algeria, you start talking to somebody interesting and halfway through they reveal, well in those days of course I was a member of the FFS. Yes. And I remarked on this and one of them said, the FFS is the only party in the world where there are three times as members, a number of ex-members as current members. <laughs> Which I think is probably true. And uh, something really. Yeah, my name is Mark Rowland. I'm an African economist at Bloomberg Intelligence. And my question, or two questions, are quite outside of this paper, but I'm interested in hearing your view. And the uh, first is, I mean, you're quite downcast on the opposition. I'm just wondering about, you know, what is the more hope? You know, within the regime, the RNI won more seats than the FLN and the... Because you don't seem to want an Arab Spring either. Does that, <laughs> does that mean anything? Or, I mean, I'm not... Uh, and then the second question is, you know, something some people have taken up is, you know, that businessmen are now becoming, joining, you know, the FLN and becoming, you know, an important part or a part of it uh, in a way they haven't before and... Is there maybe some prospects for them actually succeeding in whether politicians have failed, uh, or are they just in it for you know extracting rents, your rents, and how does that play in with these actual you know oil rents having decreased quite substantially and not really being enough to you know pay for the energy subsidies and you know the traditional social contract that we uh, had really. Thank you. All right. And uh, I just want to check, uh, do you as discussant, Ula, do you have anything? Yeah, no. Do you, are you, you're okay? Okay. All right. So perhaps this is the, we'll give you the last word now. Okay. <coughs> um, mm. 
Can I reverse the order and start with um, Mark? Mark? Um, I am uh, I am basically uh, putting forward a very pessimistic view of the so-called opposition and I'm basically saying there isn't one um, and in a way a, a more radical version of my entire thesis is would, would actually go so far as to say there are no political parties in Algeria uh, but uh, because uh, I use the word political party in a rather esoteric way um, but um, uh, that's perhaps an argument for another day. I mean, that there's so-called political parties, um, but that's not the same thing. I, uh, for that reason, I don't pay, I, I no longer think that there's anything very much of interest at stake in the so-called elections that happen. Um, I am actually rather apprehensive about Algeria. Um, we're in a very protracted fin de règne, uh, the end of the Bouddha period, uh, I actually think that uh, given the uh, realities in Algeria, Bouteflika has achievements to his credit in the early mandates, the first two mandates. I think it's a pity that he was induced to, to, to hang on. I think it would, it, it, the Algerian people would have a higher opinion of him if he had quit at the end of his second mandate instead of monkeying about with the constitution he inherited from Sarawak. Um, but we now have a situation where all my Algerian contacts are saying we don't know what tomorrow is going to be made of. Um, and there are these uh, evolutions that you refer to, uh, the rise of businessmen and more generally the power of money uh, within the regime-sponsored parties. Yes, that's, that's a clear aspect of the situation. Um, it, you might look for a positive uh, side to that, that the interests of the new entrepreneurs and business elites are being more effectively uh, represented in the corridors of power. On the other hand, it seems to be very much on a crony capitalism basis uh, and that people, uh, including very able entrepreneurs who don't play that game, get treated very badly. Um, so, uh, in a way, it seems to me that's an evolution that reminds me of what was happening in Egypt ten years uh, earlier with the crony capitalist cliques around Gamal Mubarak. Um, it's not something that necessarily has real long-term mileage uh, because it has a scandalous aspect uh, and an aspect that, uh, that it is controversial and it's something that is part of the process of the relentless erosion of the uh, moral authority of the FLN, something of the party of the FLN and the RND arguably never had much moral authority. Uh, so, in my view, the whole system of, of what I call pluralism without enfranchisement constructed by the uh, power brokers um, in 1988-89 is running down. Um, so, the, the, there is, I, don't, I, I hate alarmism and I don't want to sound alarmist, but I, I am apprehensive about what is in store for Algeria. Um, uh, and I don't see... I don't see many positives. Uh, there is a problem of uh, a kind of not just the presidential succession of who after Bouteflika, but the, in a sense the regime's succession. It's not clear to me how this regime can continue to sustain itself except by becoming more and more dependent on Algeria's external partners, relying on what I call external legitimation because uh, internally there's less and less uh, internal legitimation. So I'm worried. I'm worried. Um, Mike, 
uh, your interesting comment from your friends, uh, from the FFS, yeah, your friends in the FFS. Yeah. Um, all right, well, okay, fair enough. Um, uh, we don't want to uh, be involved with these other parties so that we're putting, trying to put together a little alliance. It's one I didn't mention in my paper. I should have done, but it's a more recent example. Um, it's, it, it seems to be the same syndrome, an interesting alliance with some ideas. The FFS doesn't touch it. It sort of goes in, it comes out. It? Exactly, yes, it, it, play, it flirts. Mm. Uh, and uh, in a way, one could perhaps suggest, it's no more than a hypothesis, that it goes in to sort of take a look around, <laughs> to count the guns and then withdraws, uh, who, whatever. Uh, that it's all about Bouteflika, therefore we don't touch it. This is a good pretext for not touching it. Um, what we want is change. Now, I would take that seriously if the FFS's own démarche, its own initiative about what we need is consensus, had been consensus on something, rather than simply the national identity and the need to preserve national unity. Um, it should have been... Uh, what the FFS has not done is said, we need the following reform to the current uh, political system that makes it more democratic, that takes us towards a uh, uh, state bound by law, l'état de droit, uh, towards better uh, respect for more guarantees for uh, human rights. It hasn't done that. If it had put that forward and then sought to, to uh, bring in other parties saying, can we all agree on this, I would be fully supportive of that and I would respect it. It's, it's what hasn't happened that uh, I find so... Uh, striking and uh, disappointing in a way, except that if you've, the logic of my paper is one shouldn't be disappointed, <laughs> one shouldn't have had these expectations. Um, Rome platform. Uh, the FFS, of course, was very important in organizing this. I mean, I actually, in my paper, credit Aitahmed with, with, with primary responsibility. That may be um, going a little too far. Certainly as much responsibility as uh, Mehri of the uh, of the FNN. I suspect more. And I think that this was, you can't understand this ex except in conjunction with its refusal to back Zerowal's initiative the previous August. Um, it's, it's refusing to, to back a conciliator initiative uh, instigated by the, 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 the head of the regime. And when the eradicator policy is re reasserted, it then organizes its own alternative. Uh, do you see what, see what it's doing? It, 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 what it, it's doing, in my view, is insisting on keeping control of uh, the conciliator agenda. And it doesn't want the regime to take it up. And this is consistent with its fetish about the denial of legitimacy. If this is your fundamental point, you don't want the regime to become more legitimate. You need a regime that you can denounce. I'm quite serious about this. And there's a whole element to, to this argument that I, after all, 15,000 words is already too much, right? Um, I, to, 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 present my argument in full, I'd have needed another 15,000, and I think John would not have allowed that. Um, I have argued elsewhere that an important element for understanding the logic of the so-called political parties in Algeria, uh, starting in the colonial period, starting with uh, the Etoile Nord-Africaine and the Parti du Peuple Algérien in particular, uh, is the extent to which they, uh, um, their behavior is governed by their um, uh, adherence to a template 
developed in the first instance by the French left, uh, and particularly by the French Communist Party, theorized by a very interesting French political scientist called Laveau. I don't know whether any of the, anyone here knows anything about this. So Laveau put forward the concept of the Tribune Party, le Parti Tribun. Uh, and he argues that this is what makes sense of the behavior of the Parti Communiste Francais, uh, that it talks the talk of uh, the downward the bourgeois state and long live the proletarian revolution, but it doesn't mean it. Uh, it's no longer revolutionary in practice. Its verbiage is revolutionary, but actually it's behaving as a tribune for the relatively marginalized or excluded the working class, and it's preserving the working class under communist aegis in a state of alienation from the wider bourgeois system. Now, that's actually exactly what the feast was doing with the Mustadafin, with the, the desperate unemployed. Uh, the feast was not truly revolutionary. Its rhetoric was, but its strategy wasn't. And I argue, actually, that that's true of the FFS as well. Um, it's behaving in accordance with the logic of the Tribune Party. Um, the, um, so my view is that, that the Rome platform was Ait Ahmed taking back the agenda that Zerawal had kind of made a grab for, and the FFA, la 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 la, Pakistan. <laughs> That's how I read it. Of course, others can read it in another way. Um, but you made a point about wasted talent, but I think it was just a point. It wasn't a question. Yeah. Um, Finally, John, I had to come. I had to come to you last. Okay, but you've only got about a minute. I'm sorry to say. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So my my my. There's the narrative, and then in a sense, there's my critique or debunking of the narrative. And actually, I am old hat because this is basically um, just another example of neo-patrimonialism. Uh, I I can't argue with that. Um, however, what I would add is two other points. First. Um, I, um, given uh, the extremely interesting discussion in your book about uh, approaches, theoretical approaches to movements of popular protest and so on, I felt I had to link the FFS case to uh, the dynamics of contention framework. Uh, I assumed that I was going to be talking to a large number of scholars, all of whom were beavering away on, within, within that problematic, um, and maybe that was a mistake. Um, but uh, in order to try to uh, not simply uh, say it's an in instance of neopatrimonialism, but actually this is an interesting history and trying to sort of provide a framework for understanding the, the history, which one can do in terms of the change from transgressive to contained contention. Um, but if I'd had more time and I was writing this paper at the end of my 11th successive semester in teaching, so I was pretty exhausted before I began, I would have actually said a problem with the FFS story is that it's not really a case of contention at all. If you take the word contention seriously, linking it to the word contend, which the Shorter Oxford Dictionary says means to strive earnestly, and my whole point is in a way there's been an element of pretense in this that it's not actually been in earnest. Um, but uh, there's a more substantive way of refiguring this relationship of this case to the contention uh, problematic, which is that, you'll recall, um, the authors of this very interesting uh, theoretical perspective on movements of protest insist on the fact that these movements make claims. <coughs> and what's striking about the FFS is it doesn't make claims, it makes denials. 
It's in the business of denying the claims of others. Um, but in a sense, it's making a tacit claim for itself. Uh, we are the virtuous, uh, and we are the true heirs of the revolution. Now, that is how I approach this paper, precisely because I didn't want to repeat the paper you heard at Mesa. But maybe you would have liked me to do that. Um, no, I, I... But there is um, an implicit target, which, and, and it's purely implicit. Perhaps I've been studying Algeria for too long. Uh, I've become more and more inclined to the esoteric. Uh, there is an implicit target. The person who tried to theorize the FFS originally was a, a very uh, interesting French sociologist called Jeanne Favre. Um, and she wrote a, a thought-provoking article called Tradition Through Ultramodernism about the original FFS revolt, challenging the view that this was um, um, a backward-looking, regressive movement, a nativist movement, um, along the lines of, well, Berbers will be Berbers. They're just doing what their grandfathers had done, rebelling, because that's all they know. And arguing, on the contrary, that this rebellion was rooted in the outlook of the Kabyles, which was actually an impatience for modernity. Uh, and this was a kind of uh, a, a way of describing things in terms of uh, the Kabyle myth, in a way, that um, uh, no worries, we can still admire the Kabyles as being more ahead of the rest of Algeria, which, of course, was an important element of the colonial ideology. Um, I have, uh, in a sense, had Favre as a tacit target because what I've wanted to do is to develop uh, an understanding of the FFS that is different from hers because she operates with this um, old binary, traditional and modern. And if you think about it, those of you who have read the paper, uh, what I'm actually describing is the importance of a number of different traditions in orienting the actions of actors. It's not a question of the traditional as a kind of reified essential thing. On the contrary, there is the tradition of the Maki, there's the tradition of uh, Maraboutic behavior, there's the tradition of uh, various things that are still alive and are selectively remobilized. I think that's really good, but we, have to, we do have to stop. Yeah. So that's my target. Okay. So, uh, wonderful. Well, listen, I mean, this, you've treated us to many riches. Uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, I mean, you know, very rich and historically uh, developed work. And as in your other work, you give us a kind of a detective hunt and we graduate and we develop the thesis in, in, in obviously a very powerful way. And you, this insistence on on politics, actually, and on political institutions and political demands. I, I see that as linked to, to your other work as well. And then, I mean, another piece of it is often in social movements theory, it doesn't discuss the, the politics around contesting for power or even denying legitimacy in the state. So anyway, loads of riches. You've given us much to think about and provoke us. Can I just say before you go and before we thank Hugh, uh, thank you all very much coming indeed I thought that was a rich discussion it's really good to see so many of the especially North African uh, studies people here as well and others um, and and if you we this um, social movements and popular mobilization in the MENA series uh, doesn't actually convene again until uh, the 17th of October and we don't know exactly what we're doing then but we will be back uh, then uh, otherwise if you do want to be 
uh, involved with that research network, meaning, and the, first of all, we send you every two weeks uh, everything and anything to do with contentious politics, social movements, and protests in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, publications or events or actual protests in motion. We do a digest and we send it to you every two weeks. If you want to be involved in that, please send me an email. I, um, uh, you can Google me, John Chalcraft, and I'll send you an invitation to be part of that research network, which has now got more than 100 uh, academics and colleagues on four continents, and, and so, you know, and it's, uh, hopefully it could be an interesting thing. Otherwise, thank you very much to Sandra Svea, who's over there, of the Middle East Center, and to the Government Department for funding this. And above all, thank you very much to um, Ola, Ola Hariri as, for acting as discussant, and to uh, Professor Roberts for this, uh, for this rich paper, which I hope will keep us talking uh, for a while. <coughs> thank you.